You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. I'm Esther Rakusin, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Today, we honor Earth Day. Yes, we know that the 50th anniversary of Earth Day took place on Wednesday, April 22nd. But when it comes down to it, as they say, there is no planet B, and thus, we should be honoring Mother Earth every day. So today, we raise a glass of Earth-given water and celebrate the planet that sustains us. On today's show, we feature Janani Harihanan's interview of soil scientist Roland Wilhelm. Dr. Wilhelm, who goes by the nickname Roly, talks about the soil bacterium Paraburkoldaria madseniana. This intriguing bacterium, discovered just a couple of miles away from Cornell, has a list of interesting traits nearly as long as its species name. Also on today's show, Liz Mhud digs deep to present a review of current volcanology research. Later on, you'll hear educator Lori Rubin give some tips on how to go out and observe the natural world. And to close out the show, in honor of Earth Day and National Poetry Month, you'll hear local poet and WRFI DJ Jay Leeming reading his poem, At the Falls. To start off, here is a brief history of Earth Day. Hello listeners, my name is Candace Limper, and you are listening to Locally Source Science. For my segment, we are going to dive into a little bit of the history of Earth Day. I will cover what inspired it, who had a big role in making Earth Day, and what do people do on this day. So what started environmental awareness was after one of the largest, at the time, oil spills in the American soil in 1969 in Santa Barbara, California. This oil spill killed thousands of birds and an unknown number of sea mammals. At the time, there really was no place to process or care for oiled wildlife, says Nancy McTolridge, a zoo director. The suffering and deaths of so many animals helped get the public's attention and spurred lawmakers into action. More specifically, this caught the attention of Senator Gaylord Nelson. In fact, Nelson publicly announced the concept of Earth Day at a conference in Seattle in 1969 and spoke to people about working towards improving environmental issues. These views were shared not only with politicians, but with the general public and people around the world. And because of this, Earth was given a day. April 22, 1970 was declared the first Earth Day, a day in which people focused on making the world a better place. It has been said that Earth Day is one of the largest secular civic events in the entire world. With that said, what do people do on Earth Day? Well, I think it's fair to say that there is something almost everyone can do to participate, whether it's picking up trash or not making trash by making reusable items. The list is endless, but the general theme is to make the world a better place in whatever capacity you're capable of doing. I hope you enjoyed this summary of Earth Day. 
My name is Candace Limper, and you are listening to Locally Source Science. You're listening to the Earth Day edition of Locally Sourced Science. Earlier this month, Cornell graduate student Janani Harihanan spoke with soil scientist Roland Wilhelm. He is a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Soil and Crop Sciences and the Cornell University College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. Wilhelm studies the ecology and functional diversity of microbial communities that recycle plant matter, contribute to soil formation, and respond to environmental disturbance. The two spoke about a recently discovered and characterized soil bacterium named Paraburcolderia madseniana. This bacterium was named after the late Cornell scientist Eugene Madsen. Here, Janani asks Wilhelm to talk a little bit about Madsen and explain why the bacterium was named after the beloved scientist. So we invited you here today because we hear that you've named a new bacterial species. Right. Could you tell us a little bit about that work? Uh, yes. Um, so the work uh, stems from work done by Dr. Gene or Eugene Madsen, uh, who goes by Gene, uh, at the at Cornell. Uh, he's a he was a professor of microbiology uh, and for the past twenty years, and uh, he's a well beloved uh, mentor and instructor here at, at Cornell. Uh, and uh, did a, was a sort of a pioneer in environmental microbiology, trying to take some of the science we do in microbiology to the field and study uh, microorganisms in their natural settings. And um, he was an enthusiastic person, uh, a very clever and insightful person as well. Um, um, and unfortunately, in August of 2017, his life was uh, cut short um, uh, so we uh, we all miss him. Everyone I speak to about uh, Gene uh, expresses that sort of uh, sadness and uh, missing his upbeat personality and his vigorous scientific mind. The microbe itself um, was isolated by Gene uh, and his long-term scientific collaborator Chris Dorito, um, and it's uh, from soil in a local forest called Turkey Hill, um, and we're uh, the. Gene and Chris and I are studying how plant material is decomposed in forests, and uh, specifically this one component of, of plant material, uh, basically the major component of wood, called lignin. And, and so what we were doing was studying which organisms may be able to degrade this compound, and we isolated this organism, and uh, it's a paraburcolderia, and so we ended up naming it after Gene. Uh, it's called paraburcolderia madseniana. It has a full 11 syllables or maybe 13. It's, it's a bit of a mouthful. Um, but it's quite a, an interesting organism um, because uh, not only is it involved in uh, decomposition or the degradation of plant matter, we think it's intimately associated, associating with plant roots. Next, Janani spoke with Wilhelm about how scientists go about naming and then characterizing what they think is a newly discovered species. What is the process of naming a new species like? So I had to learn a lot about paraburcolderia, and you have to, because to name a new species, you have to demonstrate that the organism you've isolated is different. And so you have to know all about it to say how it's different. 
Um, and then, so that's sort of the exciting part. And, you know, uh, coming up with something, a name was, was also kind of fun. Uh, we had Madsenensis. That was my first attempt. But the ensis at the, na- at the end of a, the, the suffix of, the na- of a, a Latin word means from. So, and we actually didn't isolate it from Gene. <laughs> we isolated it from Turkey Hill. So we had to change it to um, either between Madsenii or Madseniana, the sort of male versus female uh, gender of the word, mm-hmm. uh, with Madseniana, the, the female one, because it has such a beautiful sound and ring to it. So, um, and so that was sort of the exciting part. And and I'll be honest, the the, the sort of pedantic dimension to it isn't it wasn't uh, hard or laborious, but it was it, you know it's it, it's a lot of does this organism do this? Yes or no? Um, you know, can it uh, use these substrates to grow? Yes or no? Um, does it have this composition of, of lipids in its cell membrane? You talked about how you need so much data, so much information to be able to characterize something as a new species, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm imagining that this was in a solo effort. What was your team like? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I could have done it without the, the team. There's a number of people um, in, in describing Parabricklediria madsenniana, um, we worked with uh, undergrads, two undergraduates, uh, a PhD students, uh, and two senior faculty um, to, to name that bacteria. And really the effort was uh, sustained and supported by, by everybody in that group, which was really nice. Um, the undergraduates uh, had the sort of a, the, the opportunity to uh, contribute uh, to a, a manuscript and, and see how it's prepared. Uh, and, and they, they did the work to characterize how this bacteria grows, uh, what conditions favor its growth. You know, one of the, some of the major determinants of uh, microbial uh, growth or survival is salinity, how salty the, the, their environment is, the pH, how acidic or how basic the environment is, and also temperature. So to name a bacteria, we, we, we expose the, them to those, a range of conditions and see which one it, it survives or, or grows best at. And that was the work of Nicole Ferenciak. Uh, and then um, David Caraz worked on studying how, which different aromatic compounds uh, this bacteria could degrade. And the aromatic compounds were important because we think it's degrading this lignin material of plants, and that material is made out of aromatic compounds. So uh, he, did, he did a variety of tests on that. And so without that work, the paper you know, wouldn't have really come together, and it also wouldn't have been as interesting because some of that work was, uh, you know, it, it informed how we, how, we, how we continue to think about this organism. And then um, a PhD student, uh, Sean Murphy, helped oversee all that and he spent him and Nicole spent some long days in the lab tracking bacterial growth because some of this has to be done across time. So you mentioned that you look at salinity, temperature and pH when you're um, looking to characterize a new species. What else do you look at? What is the conclusive evidence that tells you that one species is different from another? Okay, yes, that's a it's a, it's a good question. So for the early days all we had was microscopes and, and it's a basic Uh, things that we could describe bacteria with. Now we have sequencing technology. So we can take the DNA from a cell and we can sequence it and know all of its genetic material or all the the genes it encodes. So that's that's obviously a much higher resolution map of what an organism is. And so that really does now make up sort of the core of how we differentiate different species. So what we do is we take that genome and we compare it in fragments against another genome and say, okay, at what percentage do these things match to the other? How similar are these two genomes? And we have this sort of threshold where we say, okay, if it's below this threshold, if the, the two genomes are 
not similar enough, we can say that they're actually from different species. So that's sort of the definitive way uh, of, of saying for sure. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Earth Day edition of Locally Sourced Science. Janani Harihanan is speaking with Dr. Roly Wilhelm about a newly discovered soil bacterium called Paraburkholderia madseniana. Here, Wilhelm talks about some of the qualities of Paraburkholderia species and why they are of interest to scientists who study the interactions between plants and soil microbes. So what was cool about this paraburkholderia that you haven't seen in other bacteria? Oh, paraburkholderia. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? <laughs> no. Um, so, well, paraburkholderia, it's, uh, it's a unique bacteria because it belongs to a group that are associated with plant roots. Um, so a little bit of history in terms of how we study microbes in the environment. We were really interested for a long time with plant-associated organisms and organisms that uh, uh, nodulate and fix nitrogen. Because nitrogen is a very limiting element to life, and it's also hard to, to come by. And so we found that plants have these nodules that contain bacteria that are uh, fed by the plant and in return fix nitrogen, pull nitrogen from the air and provide it to the plant. So it's very, very important. These are the legumes, these are the beans, and other, um, uh, it's a whole family of plants that form these nodules. Um, and the, the, the type of bacteria we were finding in those nodules was typically from a very specific group of bacteria, the alpha proteobacteria. But in about 2006, we, we found another group bacteria of bacteria that did this, and that's actually, they largely belong to this group of paraburkholderia. So they're, they're, um, they're, they've been a novel type of research for a little while. And so we've actually isolated uh, a few more of these paraburkholderia from another local forest. It's the work of Taylor Kyle here uh, in the Soil and Crops Department as well. And uh, they have these weird uh, cell shapes. Um, you know, when, when there's a lot of, when the nutrient concentrations in the environment are high, these, these cells will form very long filamentous fibers, uh, undivided long chain of cells. And uh, when the concentrations are low, they'll actually look entirely different. They'll take the shape of one or two cells and they'll have a flagella, uh, sort of a, a structure on cells that allow them to swim. So when the concentrations are low, you can imagine the, the bacteria are, they haven't found their home yet, they haven't found their, their, their stable source of nutrition, so they're exploring, they're swimming around. And when they achieve that, when they reach that, they differentiate into these long filamentous fibers, which we don't know quite what is happening there. Of course, it helps um, to have, in this case, they have a, a high surface area to volume, which means they can sort of suck up more nutrients. Um, and so that would be a benefit. They look a lot like root hairs to me. So that's what I'm. That's how I'm thinking about it. I think these bacteria are essentially uh, uh, questing for roots, and when they find them, they differentiate into their, their a new form that may benefit the plant, that may benefit them, or, and, and sort of. So there's some interesting ecology and physiology and, and biology to to look at. Next, Johnny asked Wilhelm what his favorite soil bacterium is. Here, he discusses what he calls surface-attached bacteria. And so you said that you typically study microbial communities and groups of bacteria. Mm -hmm. 
are parabercolderia your favorite types of bacteria? <laughs> a loaded question. Yeah, um, I have a, a number of loves. Parabercolderia has, has, has risen to the top at the moment. It's the, it's the latest thing. But I also am very fascinated with um, bacteria that form stable associations with uh, uh, plants and, and also um, the byproducts of plants, so the decomposing parts of plants, which are often when a plant cell breaks open and is digested, the, the cell walls are what remain, the sort of insoluble, rigid material that we use for building. And, um, and the organisms that can make use of that actually have this interesting um, biology where they can adhere to surfaces. So that I've really become interested in what I'm calling surface-attached bacteria. Uh, and so one of them is a, is a bacteria that's a model organism called Colobacter crescentis, and it forms one of the stickiest um, uh, substances, adhesives known to nature that we've ever uh, recovered from nature. It's called holdfast. And so what these cells do is produce this holdfast at the end of a stalk. They kind of look like a banana, so they have this sort of um, bent shape cell, and at the end they have a stalk, and at the very tip of that stalk, they secrete this holdfast and they stick to the surfaces irreversibly. So those cells are committed to that uh, relationship with the surface. And then their offspring and, and their daughter cells have uh, flagella and they'll swim away. And that's how they explore and then colonize different uh, environments. Why is it important to study soil microbes? Ah, so many reasons. I mean, there's the direct benefit for humans because plants co-evolve with microbes. And the more we understand those interactions and those associations, the better we understand plants, the better we can uh, uh, improve our agricultural systems, um, increase our sustainable use of uh, the planet, the soil itself. Uh, the fertility of the soil is dependent on these interactions for sure. Um, but then also, uh, you know, the, the research is funded in terms of uh, looking at carbon cycling how organisms contribute to the release of carbon from soil or the, the sequestration, st stabilization of carbon. And so we don't really know a lot of, we don't have firm answers to a lot of those questions, so that's still ongoing work. Here, Wilhelm provides advice to students who want to study soil microbes. You know, a lot of environmental microbiologists do come from the environmental sciences and, and try to cross-pollinate as much as they can. You know, the microbiology dimension to it is infinitely uh, complex, right? You can, you can start looking at the cell machinery, the enzymology, you can look at the, the ecophysiology, some more specific dimensions of what a cell does in the environment, or you can even just look at population-level ecology and the theories uh, that govern microbial populations, how they interact with each other and the environment. So there's many you know, levels at which you can you know, jump in. Uh, and so for sure, take a class in introductory microbiology, take a class in bioinformatics, uh, uh, microbiome type data sets. Those, if, if, and if that stuff captures your attention and you're into it, then keep going. You just heard locally sourced science contributor Janani Harihanan's interview with Dr. Roland Wilhelm, a postdoctoral fellow studying soil microbes at the Cornell School of Integrative Plant Science. You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Would you like to share some science news or comment on our show? 
send us an email at locallysourcedscience at gmail.com. Tweet at us at FLX Science Radio. Check out our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. At that site, you can subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. Hello, Locally Sourced Science listeners. As part of our special Earth Day episode, we're going to highlight a feature of our planet that has the unique ability to potentially destroy it, volcanoes. Some volcanoes, most notably Indonesia's Anak Krakatau and the Tau Volcano in the Philippines, have made waves recently for showing signs of disruption. Because of these potential threats, and to learn more about our wonderful planet, Locally Sourced Science is going on our journey to the center of the Earth. First, we're going to ask what makes volcanoes erupt. What features would cause a volcano that has been seemingly quiet for decades or even centuries to suddenly emit plumes of smoke? One major reason for this is tectonic plates. When one plate pushes underneath another one, this can push seawater and rock into the chamber of the volcano. If enough rock and seawater are pushed into the chamber, the volcano may erupt to relieve built-up pressure. Another factor for volcanoes covered in glaciers is global warming. As these glaciers melt, pressure on top of the volcanoes is removed, which can change the composition of the magma inside the volcano and trigger an eruption. Next, you may be asking, why should I, an Ithacan, Watkins Glennon, or Tompkins Countyan, care about volcanic eruptions? The answer, unfortunately, is that volcanic eruptions can have global consequences. Does the year 1816 have any significance to you? Other than being the second-to-last year of James Madison's presidency, 1816 is known for being the, quote, year without a summer, end quote, due to abnormally cold, oftentimes below freezing temperatures, recorded during the summer. One of the major causes of this global catastrophe was the eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia, the largest eruption in at least 1,300 years. This eruption emitted so much ash into the atmosphere that it traveled worldwide, lowered global temperatures, and caused massive harvest failures. With volcanoes posing such a threat to global as well as local communities, we finally ask how well can scientists predict volcanic eruptions. Traditionally, scientists have used telltale signs as indicators that a volcano is about to erupt. These can include gas emissions, seismic activity, and non-seismic ground deformations. However, these don't work for all eruptions, and scientists are actively looking for more signs of volcanic activity. Researchers at Michigan State University are now using sensitive GPS ground sensors and satellite imagery to track how rocks break inside volcanoes preceding an eruption, which could be used as an additional warning sign. Similarly, Cornell researchers are tracking thermal activities of volcanoes from satellite images in order to predict volcanic activity in countries lacking instruments that track volcanic activity on the ground. I'm Liz Mahood, and that was Locally Sourced Science's feature on volcanoes in celebration of Earth Day. Hopefully, you've been able to take some breaks from your Zoom meetings to enjoy the great outdoors. Here are some tips from Lori Rubin, a local educator, about how to more closely observe the natural world. I think you can connect to the natural world in different ways, depending on what you're used to. It could simply be for the exercise and breathing nice, clean, fresh air. You can just take in the general scenery of of what you're looking at, or you can get into 
more nitty gritty detail of really what I always call making friends in the natural world, learning uh, the names, especially the plants, but also the animals, um, especially birds that you come across. And um, so for me, when I'm hiking and I come across a plant or a bird that I know, already know, it just feels great, makes me feel good and makes me smile. Here, Ruben talks about the idea of keeping a journal to help connect to the natural world. As the weather gets nicer, we can, you know, go out and sit. Um, it's great for, for any family or individual to find a spot that's close to their home that's not hard to get to and revisit that spot over and over again um, with a journal and just sit quietly for a bit and observe what's going on around you and write it down. Um, you know, you could write a poem, you could draw a picture, um, you could just make a list of what you see. But for me, that has really made me connect more fully to the natural world and what's around me. I then asked Ruben to describe how she taught her kids how to keep a nature journal. The first thing would be very simple. Let's just go out and see what we find. And um, we can either draw it or, like I said, draw or write a list. Not, a, not all kids or all adults feel comfortable drawing. Um, but first, just, you know, ob observations. What do we see? And then the second one, I always said, notice what questions are popping into your mind. And that's not easy for everybody, whether you're a kid or an adult. Um, and it, it just takes time. It takes time to, uh, to nurture that idea. Um, so, you know, a simple example would be in the fall, for example, um, you know, the colors of the changing colors of the tree are beautiful. That would be an observation. The question might be, why are they changing? How are they changing? Um, so it, it's, you know, I used to tell my students, it's that naturalists are kind of scientists and scientists walk around the world asking questions. And um, in a lot of ways, I learned that from my partner, who's a scientist, because when I took walks with him, that's what he would be doing. And so I slowly learned to do it myself. Rubin says that in order to journal, people should just find a so-called sit spot, which is a place where one can be quiet and observe nature. When I used to take my students out, um, sometimes, often I would have a particular lesson that I, you know, if it was the beginning of spring, we'd be looking for signs of spring. But sometimes we just went out and it was just to see what we would find. So when I first started doing this and I was going to a, the same sit spot over and over again, um, at first I wasn't sure what to do either, but kind of what happens is you start noticing things. You notice one grasshopper in the, in the grass and all of a sudden you see three of them or you notice uh, a flower that wasn't there the, from the, the time you were there before. This happens all the time, um, especially in the Mulholland Wildflower Gorge. I'll see one new uh, spring ephemeral flower, and then all of a sudden I look out a little further and there's a whole blanket of them. So uh, just looking around you, you know, just a three-foot diam uh, diameter around you can yield a lot of surprising um, finds. To close out the show, here is local author Jay Leeming reading his poem, At the Falls, from his book, Miracle Atlas, 
published in 2011. The river loud and roaring today, the waterfall a thunderstorm that never moves. Clouds of spray rinse fallen sycamore leaves for hours. Years ago, an abandoned mill house was swept away by this river in flood, swallowed whole, carried downstream, and thrown over the fall's high edge. Miraculous how that building was once a blueprint spread out on a desk, was once lines on paper and pine trees rooted in earth. Trees felled and then cut into planks, pounded together nail by nail. Carpenters sweated to cut those boards, worked to build the frame tight so the mill would stand through years of hard storms and winter wind. But the river had its own work to do, its own craft of roaring and taking. Here in the ripsaw crash of this water, I feel the grip of larger pattern, how all things are shattered out of themselves, broken and gathered up. How one day rain was added to rain, until that whole ruined house came showering out of the air. I'm Esther Rakusin, and you've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. I produce today's show. Janani Harihanan produced the interview of Dr. Roland Wilhelm. Liz Mahood wrote the review of volcanology research, and Candace Limper produced the history of Earth Day. You also heard local author Jay Leeming read his poem, At the Falls. Our theme music is from Joe Lewis, and other music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Ben Jordan. You can find all of our archive shows and subscribe to our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. Tune in again for our next new show on Tuesday, May 12th. Science out. <laughs> <laughs>